Hello, my name is Jody Lee Moth, and welcome to Dream Gardens, where we talk about the children's books we love. On this twice-monthly podcast, I interview other kids' books enthusiasts, such as writers, teachers, and librarians, about their own favorite children's books. As I mentioned on the last podcast, I took a little time in August uh, for myself and also to upgrade a few things. Specifically, uh, I upgraded my podcast cover art and the look of my website, both of which are, I hope, uh, an improvement. If you have an opinion about either one of those or about anything at all about the content I provide, please let me know. You can do it by either commenting on a particular podcast or you can use the contact form on my website. And speaking of the contact form, if you are a writer or teacher or librarian who thinks they might be interested in participating in this, uh, use that same contact form to drop me a line. Tell me a little bit about yourself and what your favorite kids book is. Don't worry if you've never done anything like this before. Uh, Two years ago, neither had I, but I thought I'd give it a shot. And two years later, for better or worse, I'm still here. Anyway, the poem we're going to start the podcast with this time is called To Dark Eyes Dreaming. It was written by Zilpha Keatley Snyder, and I found it in the poetry collection Dreams of Glory, Poems Starring Girls, uh, which was selected by Isabel Joshing Glazer. Zilpha Keatley Snyder, who passed away in 2014, was the author of several books for children, including three Newbery Honor novels, uh, The Egypt Game, The Headless Cupid, and Witches of Worm. To Dark Eyes Dreaming by Zilpha Keatley Snyder Dreams go fast and far these days. They go by rocket thrust. They go arrayed in lights or in the dust of stars. Dreams these days go fast and far. Dreams are young these days or very old. They can be black or blue or gold. They need no special charts nor any fuel. It seems only one rule applies to all our dreams. They will not fly except an open sky. A fenced-in dream will die. My guest today is Michelle Callahan, a children's librarian at a Canadian public library and host of the book review site, Fab Book Reviews. You can find Michelle's website at fabbookreviews.com. Thank you for joining me today, Michelle. You're so welcome. I'm really excited to be here. Now, as I mentioned, you're you're host and creator of uh, the Fab Book Review. Can you talk a little bit about how that came about and uh, what it is? Well, Fab Book Reviews is my site where it's mostly focused on book reviews, and it is mostly children's literature, although I do focus on adult fiction as well, comics, uh, humor titles, young adult reviews as well, and I... I get to host a blog tours as well coming through the site and a lot of picture book talk where I do lists of picture books I've recently read and enjoyed and would recommend. It started off my blogging career, if you will. It started off years ago, actually. I had a site before Fabity Fab Book Reviews and that sort of went by the wayside and I wasn't, that was mostly young adults oriented and focused and I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do after that and I had a little bit of a break from blogging and then I decided to come back and because I had been working as a children's librarian in the interim my career had changed a little bit and my focus in literature had changed so I thought I wanted to focus more on children's more on adult fiction and kind of expand my horizons a little bit. 
How do you choose books? Do you choose books yourself or do people suggest books to you? Uh, for review, well, I'm very fortunate in that over the last three years, I've built up uh, relationships with publishers, a uh, number of which are Canadian. So, I mean, it's a great fortune as a librarian, reader and reviewer to be having titles sent for a review consideration. But the ones I pick are ones that I am enthusiastic about, that I want to share, that I want to talk about, which is a great fortune that I have so many amazing books that are sent my way that I get to talk about. And because I am a children's librarian, I'm constantly surrounded by review journals. I'm on Twitter a lot. So I, I see people talking about titles all the time. And I'm just constantly adding books to my read list. And yeah, it is basically now my blog. I don't know if you've had a chance to look over much of it, but it's overwhelmingly positive in the books that I talk about. And I found I just don't have time to spend writing negative reviews or talking about books that I wouldn't personally recommend. My time is just so limited that I'm like, I'm focusing on what I'm passionate about. Is there a book or books even recently that you've come across that uh, really stand out for you is that this is a, this is a great book that I've read and I'd like other people to know about it too. Oh, there are, a, there are a number. I mean, I'm always, I'm always reading, <laughs> always making notes on Goodreads and adding things to my list. There was uh, Julian is a Mermaid by Jessica Love, which is a gorgeous picture book, which was recently published. Um, it's actually behind me. Uh, there's Bloom by uh, Keo McClear and Julie Morstead, and they are two Canadian art artists. Keo McClear is a uh, writer, and uh, Julie Morstead is an illustrator. And I just, their work is incredible together, and that's uh, that's one book that I loved tremendously. Uh, what else? I'm going to go through my list here because I have a tremendous number of books that I enjoyed. There's a a title called Small Things by Mel Tregoning, and it's a wordless graphic novel picture book, and it's extremely impactful and poignant and emotional talking about or not talking about but it's pictorial but about a child dealing with feeling isolated and depressed and going through anxiety and a lot of emotions and as i mentioned you're a um a children's library at a, at a public librarian and a question i often ask when i have librarians on is what is a big misconception that people often have about the role of a librarian in your case a public library well, yeah, I think for children's librarianship, there's a misconception that you get to sit and read children's books. Like your work is, you know, the library opens, but the librarian, especially in children's, gets to sit and read picture books and just party and have fun. And although I do have fun, uh, there's a lot of outreaches to schools. There's welcoming preschools, doing kindergarten visits. There's doing story times, which is one of my favorite things in the world. I get to do story times for ages from uh, newborns all the way to elementary school, upper elementary schools and visiting schools and talking about summer reading club and reading review journals and ordering. So you hear this sometimes from patrons, unfortunately, who are visiting the library who might say, oh, how lovely you get to sit at the desk and read. <laughs> and that is not unless you're preparing for story time that's not a that's not part of the job it's a busy it's a it's busy work you have to be extremely flexible be on your feet and able to deal with everything from you know welcoming new families coming in to dealing with an emergency situation where you have to call you have to call 911 or the ambulance or something like that so 
I think the misconception is it's it's fun, breezy work, getting to read a lot, but that's not that's not it. I mean, it is fun because I love it, but it's just not as light, I think, as people might think it might be. You mentioned you said you read for newborns sometimes, too. I was just wondering about that. Oh, for story times, yes. There's a different program. There's the Parent Child Mother Goose program where we have uh, new uh, new parents or caregivers coming in with their uh, babies ages of zero months to 12 months. And that is a lot of rhyming. That's singing, lullabies rhyming, teaching parents or grandparents or caregivers, whoever is there with their with their baby, different songs that they can sing. It's a lot of finger play. It's a lot of being tactile and just connecting with the baby and a chance for parents to get out of the house and connect with other people and just, you know, it can be isolating being a new parent. So we hope that this kinds of programs like this and uh, Baby Tales, which are for for babies as well. It's mostly focused on singing rhymes and puppets and finger plays and things like this. But we also try and gently throw in um, doing read alouds from like board books and very simple texts. Oh, very nice. Very nice. Yeah. Now, the book you chose today as one of your uh, favorite kids books is uh, Harriet the Spy by uh, Louise Fitzhugh. And it was first published in 1964. Uh, Euro was born, as it turns out, uh, by Harper. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it was published by Harper and Row. And for readers, although it's very well known, but some who may not have actually had a chance to read it as of yet, can you talk a little bit what it's about? Okay, this is a big ask because I don't want to do a disservice to this amazing book. But essentially, the book is about a 11 year old girl named Harriet Welsh. She refers to herself as Harriet M. Welsh. She added the M to her name, and she lives in Manhattan. And her goal is to be a spy. And she wants to know everything in the world. She wants to write everything down in her notebooks. And through through her adventures around Manhattan, she starts taking notes about various neighbors and different people that she finds fascinating within the neighborhood and writes down notes about their lives. But what happens is she also, throughout writing her notebook, she starts writing things about her friends, things about classmates, and things that are brutal, at times brutal, very honest. And unfortunately, when classmates find the notebook, you can imagine what happens. And Harriet goes through a number of ups and major, major downs as she tries to navigate her way through what happens, the disaster, the fallout of what happens when her notebook falls into the wrong hands. Now, Harriet, as a as a character, uh, you could use a lot of words to describe uh, Harriet. Some of them complimentary, some of them not, some of them contradictory. She's very intelligent, very curious, but at the same time, she can be a little pig-headed and will have a very narrow view of things. So what is it about these seeming contradictions in Harriet that make her such a compelling character to read about? I think precisely because she is, at 11 years old, she is such an inquisitive, bright person. But at the same time, she is. She has a very privileged, if you will, view of the world. And what she knows is privileged because she lives in Manhattan. She's an only child. Her parents, by all accounts, do have quite a bit of money or live a wealthy lifestyle. And she has a, she has a caregiver, Ogali who looks after her. But I think precisely because she is such a contradiction in so many ways that she is that compelling and she's so blunt. You know, she's so blunt, but at the same time, so naive about things and how relationships work, even amongst her friends and, you know, her view of Ogali and her parents and 
you know, I had never really read a character like Harriet. And I was completely fascinated the first time I met her in the book. Now, in many ways, she's a very independent person, but she does have two very close friends, Janie and Sport, that are very important to her. And that's a big part of the conflict later on. What is it that they bring to Harriet that in some ways helped ground her in uh, reality, in some ways? <laughs> yeah, in some ways. I think Sport, I found Sport particular to particularly to be quite a sympathetic character. You know, he has this responsibility. He's the same age as Harriet, but he has this tremendous responsibility of taking care of himself and his father, who's a struggling writer, although that kind of turns in the book. But he takes care of the household. He does laundry. He sweeps. He cooks. He makes sure the paychecks that his father receives go towards making sure they're, they can live and sustain themselves, right? That's a huge ask for an 11-year-old, and he's been doing this for many years, as we learn. And I think he gives Harriet that other side of things, like life is, your life, Harriet, is pretty pretty privileged, and you don't know what it's like to be concerned about money and concerned about living. Um, so I think he, he gets Harriet in that way that, this is actually hard to, I'm trying to figure out how to describe it, but he gives a rootedness to Harriet, I think. And he's a good balance because his life is so different. You know, I mean, they have commonalities, but you know, Harriet will be trying to teach sport about playing town. And for him, it's like, Harriet, what are you talking about? Okay, I'll, t I'll try. I'll, I'll work with you here. I'm doing my best. And Harriet's got this mind where she's just imagining things and creating things, but sport has to go down to reality and say, no, dad, where's your paycheck? We need to eat and I need to get groceries. So that's aside. And Janie, this mad scientist, right? Whose parents are concerned that she's going to blow them up and blow up the household. And Janie, I feel like we don't get to know as well as sport. I feel like she's quite mysterious and enigmatic. And sometimes I don't know if she, does she like Harriet? At times I wonder that. I do wonder, like, what does she, what does she find about Harriet that she can connect with? But I guess it works. They respect each other's intensities because they're so focused on different different areas. But Harriet will say, I don't know what Janie's doing. It's a little bit bizarre, but I respect her work. <laughs> and I think Janie, I mean, up until the reveal of what's in the notebook, but I think Janie understands Harriet in that way, that she has this outlet, as strange as she might find it. But Harriet has her notebook and her writing and her spying, and they respect each other in that way, I think. Yeah, next to Sport and Janie, the most important person in Harriet's life is Old Golly, uh, her, her caretaker, who's her, her mentor in many ways. And mm -hmm. what you, uh, I mean, more important than her parents, uh, even in some ways. And what does she bring that her friends and her parents can't or don't or can't offer to her? I think, I mean, Old Golly has been, I mean, like her parents, she's been with Harriet for years, but Old Golly treats Harriet as an equal and because she is not her mom or dad she's her caregiver but I think in that way she takes on this mentoring role and Harriet looks up to old golly uh old golly is well read she's insightful she's incisive and she tells Harriet point blank how things are and she loves her old golly loves Harriet but she's never overly sentimental and I think that's that's interesting for a caregiver, especially especially when she leaves. You know, she leaves an 11-year-old telling Harriet, you're 11, you don't need me anymore. And 
it's just fascinating how old golly deals with harriet and how she's really formed her as a person right and even though she she leaves about halfway through the book her presence is still there uh throughout and actually has a very important role to play and um help in this conflict as we find out in the end advice that she gives to harriet although we probably don't want to say too much about that for people who haven't read uh, i know i i just that passage though there's yeah i don't want to say too much about it but there's a letter from old golly and i just remember just rereading that and rereading that and just what it does for harriet when it basically is like a little switch for harriet right because things do change after that letter and how Harriet sees things and recognizes her mistakes and what she needs to do or should do. So yeah, she's a presence though. And I was surprised. I remember first when I first read it, I think I was a, I was in a grade three, four split class and I thought old golly would be throughout. I thought she would be there. And then when this, when this happens with Mr. Waldenstein and I think I was thinking, no, she cannot possibly, no, no, no. This is this is not going to happen. They cannot. Old Golly's not going to go, and she does. And I thought, what are, what are they going to do? What are they going to do with this? What is Harriet going to do? She's going to fall apart. I remember thinking, and it kind of does for a little while, right? It takes quite a detour. Yeah, but she, Louise Fitzhugh, yeah, she makes it all work, and it's quite brilliant. We've talked about the critical moment uh, in the book where she loses the notebook and her, her friends find it. Is it fair to say, though, that it takes actually Harriet quite a long time to realize what the problem is? She knows that there's a problem and that people are reacting there, but it takes her a while to actually figure out what it is, why people are reacting the way they do. It's quite interesting, isn't it, that she does not realize. But I think, do you, do you think, though, deep down she might understand or it's something she doesn't want to face? Because I do wonder about that upon rereading. I wonder, does she know right away? Because she's so terrified, right? She screams. She screams to scare. Who's holding it? Rachel. I think Rachel's holding the notebook. Uh, one of the classmates is holding it and then Janie picks it up and starts reading and Harriet tries to scream and frighten her into dropping it. And I wonder if Harriet recognizes or if it's just guilt. <laughs> it's hard to say if it's, it's it's that she understands it or doesn't want to admit it. Or is it that she just doesn't understand why people don't see the world the way she does? Oh, I do wonder. I think with her friends, she's, especially with Sport and Janie, she's just terrified because she does say, there are good things you're missing. I wrote, there's good things about you in there. You know, because I think she's so terrified of losing the people that are close to her, her friends, right? Because she doesn't really care for anyone else in the class. But even then, she's like, she's just being, or what she thinks is honest about them, right? But then she keeps stressing, but there are good things, and there are good things. You're just missing the good parts. <laughs> now, I've often thought a, an alternate title to this book might be Portrait of the Artist as a Young Girl. Because uh, uh, this book just oh, yeah. tells us, I'm wondering, what do you think this book tells us about uh, the creative mind, particularly the mind of a writer as a, as a young writer? Because that's what Harry does. She, she, she calls herself a spy, but she's very much a writer in training. She is a writer in training. And when I read this the first time, I thought how wonderfully bold and uh, forthright Harriet was. And I think children have that. It's kind of uncensored in a way, isn't it? And she is sometimes rude 
often rude. She makes uh, assumptions about people. But it's also insightful. Like when she's writing about Harrison, character with the cats, and she writes about him and about his love and his loss. And I think there's something terribly sweet in how she writes about the world in her sort of innocent view of things, that things are simple. Or she thinks things to be simple because in many ways her life has been pretty straightforward. But I hope I'm answering your question. I kind of veered, sorry. <laughs> I feel like I veered off a little bit. You were talking about the, the artist as a, or the young, the mind of the young writer. Yeah, what is it about her that makes her, you know, the, that we can see very much that this is somebody who's going to become a writer uh, later in life? Uh, what is it What is it that she does now that it doesn't seem like it, but is actually getting her ready to become a writer? I think her noticing the world around her, being observant, I think that's that's a big part. I mean, as she gets older, I'm sure she'll recognize the the danger of making assumptions and perhaps not being as forthright or honest or mean perhaps about some people. It depends what she's what she's working on, but the fact that she is so observant, that she loves to write, that she needs, she has this craving to put pen to paper. And it's interesting as the book goes on, right, she refers, like you were saying, she refers to herself as Harriet the Spy. Old Golly calls her Harriet the Spy. But you're right, it's not so much that she's spying as she's she is writing, and it's interesting after the disaster with her found notebook, her writing changes, right? She starts, and her, I, rem- I just remember the scene when uh, Harriet's mom is asking, well, what are you writing? You're not supposed to be writing in your notebook. And Harriet says, I'm writing my memoirs, you know, and she's 11 years old. And I love that she's trying different things. And towards the end of the novel, when she's like, I need to work on my descriptions. I'm going to be working on my descriptions. And it's interesting that the disaster of the found notebook inspires her to try different writings you know and I do I I guess in my head I always imagine Harriet would grow up to be writing but it would be yeah I don't know I always hoped she would be writing so you think she does change I mean in some ways she's still spying and she still makes very sharp observations about people and she's oh yeah in some ways she hasn't really tempered uh her uh the way she sees some people but you would say that she does change somewhat to just go through somewhat of an arc i think somewhat although the root of her and i love how you say sharp observations that doesn't change i feel that's intrinsic to her just being so blunt right (laughs) i mean yeah being absolutely so blunt about something so i don't think that will change and i think her I think her sharpness is still there. And when she's writing for the, hopefully not too much of a spoiler, but when she starts writing for the school paper, it's still there, that sharpness, how she makes observations and notes about people's parents and what they're doing at parties. And she's, you know, listening into her parents' conversations about what other adults are doing. And she puts that in the school paper and people are, the students are gobbling this up because it's gossip. So that doesn't change, but I think she, she's trying different things. And I think, through having that experience with losing friendships and feeling, you know, she goes through that stage of that meanness when she says, I feel, she writes, I feel different and she feels mean and what she's writing changes and it changes again when she gets that letter from old golly and, and it changes again when she rekindles her friendship. You know, so I do think there's, there is an arc, but part of her never goes away. That part, that sharp part doesn't go away. 
Now, you, I think you mentioned this earlier, but this book has a very specific setting. It's uh, the uh, Upper East Side of Manhattan, and it's in the early 60s. And I'm wondering what you think, um, what does this, this very specific setting bring to the novel? Um, I, I, in other words, I didn't know if you could imagine it being set in another place. You know, the setting is very much a part of who Harry is and the sort of things that happen. It really is, isn't it? It's so, I, I honestly... I don't think I could imagine the book being set or this story being set elsewhere. And it's, and I think uh, because Harriet has her spy route that she goes on and it's so varied. I mean, she goes into a private residence and a dumbwaiter. She goes to the rooftop to look at Harrison and his cats, you know, spying down a skylight. And she goes to um, see a couple who just are talking to each other about boring things and, she has so many in a family that she sees that are running a deli and it's just, I don't think it could really be anywhere else. Maybe that is me being just not seeing possibilities in other parts of the world. But I think Manhattan itself is such an iconic place to have a setting. And I think it just works brilliantly because Harriet has this freedom. And when she goes exploring and she's allowed to go exploring or her parents don't really know what she's doing. But anyhow, she goes out, and she's 11 years old, going around Manhattan and having this tremendous adventure. And even within the radius that she goes spying, she sees so much, so many different things, which might be hard to do elsewhere. Yeah, I couldn't imagine it being changed. <laughs> I don't know. That would be that would be something, wouldn't it? Are there any particular uh, passages uh, from this book that you'd like to share? There are. I have some passages flagged, so I will see. I mean, there's so many different ones now. The only thing is, some of there are some of them are a little bit shorter. So I don't know if it's okay to pick multiple passages. Like, how many would you? As as many as you want. Oh dear. Okay. Well, that, was, that might be a little while. But I just uh, when it starts off, um, there's a passage here where Harriet, and it's it's in the beginning of the novel, and it's when. Ogali and Harriet are are speaking together, and Ogali is reciting as she often does. She has these passages, you know, from poets and even from from the Bible and everywhere. That Ogali seems to know everything for every occasion. Like there's a quote for everything, and um, Harriet is there, and she says, uh, "I want to know everything, everything." Screeched Harriet suddenly, lying back and bouncing up and down on the bed. Everything in the world. Everything, everything. I will be a spy and know everything. It, an old golly says, it won't do you a bit of good to know everything if you don't do anything with it. Now get up, Miss Harriet the spy. You're going to sleep now. I just love that Harriet just, and she's such a noisy person. She's slamming books, racing into the kitchen, bumping into poor cook every single day, multiple times a day. And suddenly she just screeches, you know, she just screeches and, this is like her proclamation of I want, this is, this is it. This is it. This is my life. This is what I'm going to be doing. And I just, I love that. And she doesn't often whisper, I don't think, in the book. <laughs> no, and there's even that moment where she's, the cook is baking something. And Harriet yells, why are we whispering? And the cook says, well, I'm baking something. And if you make any noise, the cake will be ruined. And what does Harriet do? She stomps, she screams, she stomps, she screams. And that's, it, it, she's obnoxious, <laughs> but yes, yeah, she doesn't really do things at a whisper, does she? <laughs> she really doesn't. Uh, let me see. There was, I'm just going to scroll through this here a little bit. Oh, 
this is after the night when Old Golly takes Harriet out with uh, Mr. Waldenstein. And where there's that big fracas with um, her parents who come home to find Harriet is not there. Old Golly is not there. And when it looks like Old Golly actually will be going and Old Golly whispers goodbye Harriet the spy. And I'm just going to read the rest of this. Goodbye Harriet the spy whispered Old Golly into Harriet's neck. Harriet felt tears start in her eyes. Old Golly put her down sternly. None of that. Tears won't bring me back. Remember that. Tears never bring anything back. Life is a struggle. And a good spy gets in there and fights. Remember that. No nonsense. I'm just going to skip a little bit and go on. That night, as she got ready for bed alone, after having taken her bath alone, she wrote in her notebook, I feel all the same things when I do things alone as when old Golly was here. The bath feels hot. The bed feels soft. But I feel there's a funny little hole in me that wasn't there before, like a splinter in your finger. But this is somewhere above my stomach. She turned out the light and went immediately to sleep without even reading. And I feel that just, that encapsulates so much of that, just that pain, Harriet's pain, that heartache. And it's almost like she doesn't, there's this, there's this hole inside me and it's just above my stomach, but she doesn't want to name, you know, that her heart is essentially broken because the person she maybe loved more than anything in the world is, is not with her anymore and I just that passage I just oh it just every time I read it it just gets to me it really does I don't want to go too much farther in the novel with passages but there is that letter from old golly but I don't want to spoil it too much because if readers haven't discovered it do you know what I mean I mean I there's so much richness in there I'll see if there's something else oh this one when she when Harriet is back on her spy route to visit Harrison Withers one of the one of the people that she spies on who has many cats. He's a living alone, making beautiful bird cages. And he is in health code violations because he has, I mean, tens and tens of cats. But one day Harriet goes to visit him and she notices when she looks down, there's, there's no cats. There's everything that he lives for, basically the cats and taking care of them and loving them and naming them all by name are gone. Are, they're all gone. So, she sees him, so not a cat in sight. She ran back to Harrison Withers to see if she had perhaps missed seeing the cats. No, nor were they in the kitchen. She sat back on her heels. They got him, she thought. They finally got him. She leaned over once more to look at his face. She looked a long time. Then she sat down and wrote in her book, I will never forget that face as long as I live. Does everybody look that way when they have lost something? I don't mean like losing a flashlight. I mean... Do people look like that when they have lost? Really, they underline on lost. And it's because I think it it's poignant, too, because Harriet has, she's lost one of the people closest to her. And then she goes to see, she's empathizing and she recognizes this sadness she might not otherwise have noticed. I feel like maybe if she had done the spy route and seen Harrison on another day in Old Golly there, she'd be like, oh, you know, they got him. They got his cats. And, but now... She's got this ache in her, this sadness, and I think it's just such a such a wonderful passage. And really, you know, she's eleven, and she's she's got insight. Yeah, and I think without Old Golly leaving, who knows what might have happened, right? Because she does have to face herself. <laughs> yeah, she really does. Yeah. Was there any other passage? Hmm. 
Hmm, there might be. I was, I honestly, <laughs> can I just show you something? <laughs> you can see how I was just flagging my, my old copy. Yes, I just, because there's so many, but I was trying to really go to the ones that are maybe one more. Okay, so this one. This is when Harriet's back at school and her notebook is taken away from her. This is after the incident when her notebook is found. And her parents decide she can, and the teachers as well at her school decide she can no longer have her notebook with her. So she's frisked in the morning and the teachers make sure she doesn't have her notebook. So she's not allowed to be writing things in class. And she she's sitting at school doing her work, not writing or scribbling in her notebook as she normally would. And she says, uh, she's thinking she's in the thoughts come slowly as though they had to squeeze through a tiny door to get to her. Whereas when she wrote, they flowed out faster than she could put them down. She sat very stupidly with a blank mind until finally, I feel different came slowly into her head. I'm skipping ahead a little bit. Yes. She thought after a long pause and then after more time, mean, I feel mean, which I thought was so interesting here. I'm going to keep going to this. This is continuing on on that same day when I, this turn when she says, I, you know, thinking, I feel different. I feel mean. And Harriet's back at home now after school. And Harriet, uh, she, ran to her in, she ran into her room and flung herself on the bed. She lay quietly for a minute, looking reverently at her notebook and then opened it. She had had an unreasonable fear that it would be empty, but there was her handwriting, reassuring if not beautiful. She grabbed up the pen and felt the mercy of her thoughts coming quickly, zooming through her head out the pen onto the paper. What a relief, she thought to herself. For a moment, I thought I had dried up. She wrote a lot about what she felt, relishing the joy of her fingers gliding across the page, the sheer relief of communication. After a while, she sat back and began to really think hard. Then she wrote again, Something is definitely happening to me. I am changing. I don't feel like me at all. I don't even, I don't ever laugh or think anything funny. I just feel mean all over. I would like to hurt each one of them in a special way that would hurt only them. And that passage, that, yeah, that was just so interesting to me as a kid reading that, that her, her spate of emotions and that meanness, right? That is, that is something that, I don't know. It just, it was something new that I hadn't really read in other books, this character who is mean. And she, she continues to plot out what she's going to do to her classmates to get, to get at them for, for excluding her. And I was like, who, what is, how, what is happening to this character? And is she going to stay mean? Is she just a horrible, horrible person that wants to do terrible things, but she's just going through so much. But yeah, that was, I just, that passage, I remember just that whole spate of these emotions in Harriet that could, could fluctuate so deeply. Yeah. Well, it gives a very honest uh, picture of what a child, you know, in a similar situation might be going through Mm -hmm. um, what they're actually sort of that age might be feeling. And I think it is comforting if you could use that word comforting in a way to, to see that in another character of that age, when kids are reading it, they can they can feel we are like emotions are on the surface and especially with friendships that are changing and what you're going through. And it's so on the surface, right? And Harriet is, uh, I mean, she puts it on the table. She is, she's not holding anything back and I feel mean and she's changing. And it is so, it is honest in that way that kids feel and express those emotions, right? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, well, Michelle, uh, thank you so much for uh, giving me the chance to revisit this book. It's been a while since I had a chance to read it. And thank you for taking the time to talk to me about it today. Oh, you're so welcome. It was just, I I could talk about this book so much. I just, I, yeah, it's one of my favorites. And it was one of my first reading experiences where I was reading something on my own that was like this, like that middle grade novel, a children's novel and Harriet just connected with me in so many different ways. You can find Michelle's website at fabbookreviews.com. Thank you for joining me on Dream Gardens. The theme music, titled All Together, is provided courtesy of Purple Planet Music. You can visit them at www.purpleplanet.com. Podcast cover art was created through Canva, which can be found at www.canva.com. You can visit me at jleemont.com or follow me on Twitter at DreamGardensJLM. The Dream Gardens podcast is also available through iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you like what you hear, please comment, share, or subscribe. And if you'd like to participate in the Dream Gardens podcast, go to the contact page on my website and send me a note telling me who you are and what book you'd like to talk about. And until next time, keep dreaming, keep growing, and keep reading.